Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We're talking about... John Kennedy Tools, A Confederacy of Dunces. We're going to talk about parts four, five, and six, and it's Thanksgiving week. So uh, while this will not be up for your Thanksgiving, it might be up for your holiday weekend travel, recovery, your recovery, your shopping, leftovers, your your cleaning. If you decided like Friday or Saturday to actually clean up, um, your Christmas shopping, whatever it is you're doing this weekend. Uh, we can uh, join in on the fun. So we're here to discuss, speaking of fun, chapters four, five, and six of A Confederacy of Dunces. And I wrote down a couple of questions here for you guys. And I was thinking about this is one of those books. It's, it's unusual, especially, I mentioned this last week, but it's unusual compared to many of the books that we read on the show for the way that it thinks about plot. Because it's really not even clear, for example, what our character wants like, what is the, the, you know, if you're thinking about the traditional story arc, what is the thing that he wants? What is the thing that he desires? What is he trying to overcome? I mean, lots of those sorts of things, right? But we're not really even clear on what is this story about other than this guy and his craziness. So what I wanted to ask, I, I started thinking about, this is one of those books where you constantly say, what's the deal with, and then you insert a bunch of things. Like you're constantly saying, what's the deal with, you know, and then insert whatever it is you want to know what the deal is with it. So a couple of those things, for example, are what's the deal with Jones? What is the purpose of Jones in this story? Mm. What's the deal with how gross Ignatius is, right? We talked about how there is a lot of comedy in this, but why does Ignatius have to be as gross as he is? Um, What's the deal with the geometry? (laughs) Things like that. So, before we get into some questions that I have related to that, here's a simple question that I want to ask at the beginning. Heidi, is Ignatius J. Riley smart? Yes. Yes, he is smart. I feel like that's a trick question, but I'm going to go with yes. I thought about setting this up ahead of time and being like, Heidi, you should argue no or yes. And Tim, you should argue the other way. And then we should argue about whether Ignatius J. Riley is smart. I'll argue no. I'd be glad to argue no. I think you can make the case. So I'd like you to make the case. That he's smart? That he's not smart. Tim's going to talk about why he's not smart. And then Heidi, you can talk about why he is. We touched on this last week. I contend that it is very easy. Very easy. Um... I'll put it a different way. It's, it's not an evidence of intelligence if you have a um, philosophy of life that you can articulate in great detail um, that doesn't actually interact with the world or with people in any meaningful dialectical way. In other words, um, if we had a dentist who had memorized the, you know, the, the latest 
and best uh, update to his perfection and could recite and could recite um, the periodic tables figures about of yeah the about teeth cleaning and molars. It might sound kind of impressive because it's using all sorts of arcane jargon, and we might say, "Oh, Doctor Riley is you know very intelligent." Did you hear him use the word of like you know what some obscure word or whatever? But I mean, I think the deal with Riley is that he's building this, or he has built a kind of edifice of theology and geometry around him that cannot interact with reality in any substantial way. Mm. So that's my opening salvo argument that he might have capacity. He might have capacity to kind of like recite a certain complaint against the modern world, but I don't know that that's evidence of intelligence. I don't think that he's unintelligent. I just wouldn't argue that he's in intelligent. I think he's stunted. Tim, Tim has presented his opening salvo. Heidi, would you like to offer some of your opening remarks? Yeah, I think I just have a broader definition of smart. I I think it's just a matter of semantics because everything Tim is saying, everything you're saying, Tim, I totally agree with. I just think I might use a different word like wisdom versus smart. Like he is. Like he has no wisdom, but he does have smarts. Yeah, I think he is smart because he knows a lot of stuff. And so that's why I think he's smart. That's like, I'm so I'm using it in kind of the broad, non, yeah, the broad sense of it. But I agree with you on what you're saying. So sorry, so I, that's a bad, bad, that's a bad back and forth salvo. Okay, maybe, maybe <laughs> here's, here's a way to answer the question or address the question. Do we think that... Ignatius Riley would score well on his SAT. And if the answer is yes, do we think that the SAT is an indication of intelligence? Yeah, that's, I mean, you're going down a dark trail, a dark and murky trail. Um, (laughs) I, yeah, I think he would, but I think like David said, he probably would refuse to take it. I think a lot, so, so much maybe this is to your point, so, so much holds Ignatius Riley back from any kind of meaningful interaction with uh, a, the real world, whatever that means. Um, and that would he take the SATs because he probably wouldn't because he would think he was too smart to take the SATs, which means he's a dummy, right? So that, I think that everything <laughs> I'm saying kind of bolsters your argument. Um, but I do just tend to think of smart as the either the capacity and even the amount and quantity of knowledge, which I think he has. And I think yeah. there's other people in the book that are just not smart. And so he is, uh, if, if he had character, if he had wisdom, if he had any modicum of virtue, he could do something with his, the amount of knowledge that he has um, and he doesn't, he doesn't, which is kind of the whole point of the book. So in that sense, you can even argue he's not smart because he's doing nothing with his knowledge, which is not a smart thing to do. Hmm. Yeah. I used a smart kind of is a general, 
a general word. Well, and so, I avoided the, saying, what do you mean by smart? Because I am assuming <laughs> that you wanted what we mean by smart to become part of the back and forth. So, Yeah, I mean, I, so it, it got me just thinking about how are we supposed to think about this book? And, and, and it, or, or rather, to what degree should Ignatius J. Riley's intelligence be sort of a, 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 def, a definer of this book? Because he is consumed by his own intelligence. And everyone else kind of, when you first meet him, you're kind of taken by his capacity to, for at least five minutes, you know, he holds you in a to spell. diatribe. Yeah, He's yeah, a to diatribe. To, to diatribe. I mean, I can't. This he is the modern diatriber on social media, right? And then he gets people all worked up into a frenzy over something that he doesn't actually care about, <laughs> but he thinks he cares about, right? And next thing you know, you're, I think he cares. I think he cares about theology and geometry. I think. I think he cares about Boethius. Right. Well, why do? But why? Why? I mean, not only why do you think that, but why do we think he cares? It shows up repeatedly in his um, complaints. He spends time um, dwelling on those things. I mean, sorry. Maybe I, the I, argument could be he's he's using them to as a foil against you know whatever goes wrong throughout his day. But I think he knows he can kind of explain Boethius well enough to denote that he, like he spent time with Boethius. He's yeah. read the Constellation of Philosophy. Does he care about those things because he thinks there's value in them, or does he care about them because of what, of how of how they can help him present himself? Mm. That's like, a good question. Like, does he care about? I mean, does he turn to Boethius? Does he turn to notions of geometry? Does he claim that people should attend to those kind of things because they offer something of value or because they can help define him? Hmm. Certainly the latter. Certainly the latter. Uh, I mean, I, I think one of the, having just read Consolation of Philosophy, uh, in t- this year, like um, less than a month ago, I there is such a disconnect between Ignatius Riley's uh, being in the world versus anything that Boethius has to say uh, <laughs> that it is so so glaringly obvious that one of the things that our author is pointing out is. What is or a question not pointing out, asking the question that you just asked, David, what does it mean to care? Yeah, so Ignatius Riley is I the whole point of Boethius's consolation of philosophy is to embrace the world with this robust engagement with the good, right? And to uh and to endure, and he even explains it. Like, I mean, John John Kennedy Tool, he's he's a fantastic writer. David, I'm you you mentioned before that lamenting the fact that he died so young and that he didn't write more. And I'm heartily with you because he's brilliant in his craft. And I keep just noticing his amazing writing. Um, and one of the things he does is kind of explain Boethius with he embeds an opportunity to explain Boethius within the novel for those of us readers yeah. who haven't read it, right? And it was you great. can really, it was really tell. smooth. That he's yeah. knowledgeable about these things that Ignatius is knowledgeable about. 
Right. And it almost feels like he is, it's uh, almost like he's working out his own, what he, what he worries that he could be like right. in Ignatius. Well, and he makes Ignatius very, um, like a, just this very strange collision between medieval man and modern man. And it's very disorienting. And, uh, but anyway, Boethius, he, he tells us in the novel that Boethius was wrongfully accused and that, uh, and he was put in prison. Then he wrote this great treatise on how to endure suffering and it became the basis of medieval thought. And that's true. And in every way, Ignatius is the total opposite of Boethius. And, uh, and that creates this really interesting, um, uh, you know, that, that hits the reader. Like we know that this man is a hypocrite, right? And that's part of the, what makes the book so funny, but it's also part of what makes the book so sad. And then yeah. because there's this dissonance between what he espouses as his ideals and how he fails to meet them in any kind of way and his total blindness and acknowledging about himself, then that, that's the conflict of the book so far as I can tell. Um, I'm not even sure exactly to your point, David, you brought up early. I'm not even sure what this book is about except for that. And, um, and that is, and that kind of makes us kind of wrestle with this dissonance between the humor and the sadness inherent in that. And it, and it creates this kind of dissonance in the reader, at least it does for me. And I think that's part of what's so delightful and also so troubling about this book. So you're talking about dissonance there. Do you think that he is saying, Tim, this is for you too. Do you think the John Kennedy tool is suggesting that Ignatius J. Riley is the inevitable result of what would happen if the modern man and the medieval man collided? So like that, the disorientation that is, that he clearly is living through the dissonance. Like, is that the, is he like a caricature of an, an inevitable caricature, I don't know how to say it exactly, of what happens when the modern and the medieval collides? Or if not, what is missing that, like, what would somebody else need in their lives, in their souls, whatever, to avoid being that? Like, say you're the medieval man, you step into the modern world, like, and an, an it's sort of inverse of the, the Twain story, um, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. So let's inverse that. The medieval man comes to the modern world. What would he need to have within him to avoid being Ignatius J. Riley? Do you think that the book offers anything on that? It's a hard question. A father figure? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, I want to say a willingness to take the modern world seriously. I mean, the funny thing is, I think there's so many aspects of uh, Ignatius J. Riley. This is going to actually undermine my point a little bit. I think Ignatius J. Riley, there's so many things that he loves about the modern world, and he kind of is revolted with himself for loving it. I mean, yeah. the obvious case that we mentioned last week is the show with like the young people who are dancing. He's obviously kind of titillated by it and he just like rages against it. Um, he loves the hot dogs from Paradise Vendors, Inc. He loves those hot dogs and they're like clearly just disgusting. But I think that like 
he is barred from actually voicing affection for anything in his surroundings because he's just kind of like trapped within this philosophy of, I want to say of his own building. You know, he's just kind of trapped in this little iron cage of medievalism. And like you were saying, Heidi, that medievalism doesn't really, it doesn't actually take Boethius seriously, you know, as a counsel for life. Right. Well, and he's, I I think the long silences at David's question are um, evidence of how good this book is. It's very good. Um, It's, it's gross. Like that whole hot dog eating scene. I was like, I'm going to throw up in my mouth. Like, yeah. it's, but even that is like great writing. Right. And there are several of the, these moments, the bed sheet that, Oh, the exercise board. Like there were just things that oh, happened yeah. in this section that I was like, this is <laughs> revolting. Yeah. Um, but the fact that I have such a visceral physical reaction is evidence of how, uh, of his skill as a of John Kennedy tool skill as a writer. And also of the, in the dissonance between the mind and the body that's that's built into the fabric of this book. Uh, and and I think the thing he's missing, I love that question, David. I think the thing that he's missing is a chest, right? It's a heart. It's like he's a man without a chest. He is fully ruled by his appetites. Uh, and like in a very literal sense, he's ruled by his appetites. Um, and, and yet he's raging against that. Right. And yet his mind is full of these lofty ideals. Like he picked, he could have picked classical or medieval, right? Uh, John Kennedy tool to give him an obsession with because both of them have such an abstract, lofty idealism. And uh, that is missing from the metaphysics of the modern world. And so in order to give Ignatius Riley his head full of the clouds, right? He, uh, the author had to give him some kind of um, idealistic fantasy that's completely disembodied because he's so, because that then creates this vacuum where his heart and his chest should be. Um, and, and, and that's the, that's the thing he's missing. Um, and I think that makes him like, I, I, I texted, it's funny, David, I was texting with your mom earlier with Karen Kern and she's saying, should I read this book? And I said, I don't know. It's like Don Quixote written by Walker Percy after a bad family dinner. Like, (laughs) Like it just has this, um, this grief and also this hilarity. Yes. Right. Yes. Woodhouse woven in there. Um, And I think there's a very strong moral center to this book, but you have to look for it. And it's the absence of it that makes that um, within the characters uh, that it seems to me that John Kennedy tool is like kind of grieving um, the absence of the chest within the modern world. And so he's giving us multiple characters led by appetite or led by mind and having no kind of ennobling um, virtue and wisdom that guides or mediates between the two. I really think that's why this book has been so popular among uh, Catholic and mm-hmm. Christian readers, you know, especially the, the writers, you know, people like obviously Walker Percy, but, you know, people that were from that school and that love O'Connor and that love C.S. Lewis. Like this book is 
a cult. This book is a cult classic among those people as much as anybody. Um, so then you're talking about the appetites then. Tim, do you think that what she's saying about the appetites is why then Ignatius has to be gross? Like I mentioned, what's the deal with how gross he is? And we've talked about all these scenes, right? Is that why he has to be as gross as he is? Because he has to, it has to be like the objective correlative of his of his being consumed by his appetites. And why does he have to be consumed by his appetites? Because he because he's a man without a chest, and he's kind of like ruled by his belly as much as he wants to be ruled by his mind. Is that that's the idea? That was my theory. That's what yeah. I posited. Yeah. So I'm just trying to connect I mean, that to that question sense. about his grossness. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I can see that because I think. I, go ahead. I I, I think that. I don't want to lose track. I just, to say the obvious, I think this book is written first and foremost to be really, really funny. Oh, I, mean, I, I don't agree it, with it that is, at all, Tim. Oh, really? No. Oh, no, I think it's the chief objective of this book is to be funny, is to make us laugh. I don't deny that there are other, that, that, that it's sad for a reason, um, but I think every page is predominantly concerned with making the reader laugh. Hmm. What do you what do you think it's about? I think it's a fable. I think it's a fable, a fable about of, the modern soul. And I think and it is his, funny. Like I I'm not trying to diminish the humor of it. I think that the humor is the vehicle for that. But I think that it is I think the reason this book succeeds uh is because it is saying something about society and about modernity. Um, and I think about a disembodied, an education without a chest as well. Um, like I, I, I think it's, I don't think it's indicting medieval learning, but I think it's definitely indicting an education that would instill that without any kind of attention to ennobling the soul. And, um, and so I, I think it is a fable about modernity and I think it's funny too, but I don't agree that it's funny first. I'm really surprised at that. I'm really surprised at that. Okay, my counter questions are, um, if it is an indictment of modernity, why is our lead character so concerned with medievalism? It would be strategically much easier to make him a Marxist, to make him someone like Myrna. And sure, she gets her kind of indictment along the way, but if it's an indictment of um modernity, it seems like you have to have a kind of corresponding affection for modern ideals within his philosophy rather than medievalism. Right. I mean, I'd, I think you're right about Marxism. That's, I think that's a good point. But I also think it is, the, the question for him is, for Ignatius, um, is that gap within his soul, if it was just about Marxism, then it would be modernity pitted against modernity, right? It would have no historical kind of foundation to explore the gap between what used to be and what is now, because Marxist is a modern ideology. And so I think that he's, he's, I think we're looking at kind of this historical unfolding. I think one of the questions that John Kennedy Toole is asking is, would 
a very similar to what, say, Lewis did in um, that hideous strength, which is what would happen if, as David said, a modern man received a medieval education without any kind of ennobling of the soul. Then it would then you would get a man led by his appetites with a lot of ideas in his head, but with a total gap where his heart should be. And that is exactly what we have with Ignatius Riley. So I think that's very intentional and very well thought out on the part of our author uh, to give him what is essentially a classical education without any emphasis on wisdom and virtue, just on the knowledge. Uh, and, and that's that gap um, of the tripart soul, of the, of the head, the heart, and the belly that, that's explored, which is why I think what, what reminds me so profoundly of Walker Percy, because a lot of his comic characters have the same profound sadness and the same absence where their heart and their chest ought to be. Mm. So I, I think he is doing exactly what Walker Percy was doing. I think we have a more tormented author though. Um, knowing, knowing that he committed suicide makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I think that I, I feel that I feel this aching, this, I feel this like haunted quality within the writing that doesn't, that's not just about the plot and the characters, but seems to be a reflection of, of its author. And that's that I can't prove that that's nothing but an impression. Um, but it, I, I think it's true. And do you think that if we asked John Kennedy O'Toole, Hey, what was the intention behind the book? He would say something like what you said or do you think, or is it more like, he might not have said this, but kind of like seeing how troubled he was, we now know that there was a kind of a deeper purpose to his book that we can kind of see more clearly, maybe even than he could. I, I think you would, I think you would say what I said. I think this is so well crafted. Like, I think this is one of the best crafted characters like that I've read in a long, long time. Um, Ignatius Riley and all of it. However, here's where I'm a little stuck. I can't tell what the plot of this book is at all. All I see is the characters. I don't know where mm-hmm. it's going. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the conflict of the story is other than Ignatius Riley as a conflicted character. And so in that sense, that then draws me so much to Ignatius Riley that I'm thinking there's either a flaw in the craft or the whole point is Ignatius Riley's conflict. And that's where we're supposed to kind of enter this crazy making black hole when we're throwing out all of these, like, is it because he's not, he doesn't have a dad? Is it because he is full of shame? Is it because he's so, you know, like then, so then, then in, we're doing this psychological study, which is a pretty modern thing to do and not at all a medieval thing to do. Um, <laughs> and so that, that also creates a bit of a dissonance for us. It's just complicated, but I don't, I do not think that this, I think the book is really, really funny, like really funny, but I do not think this is just a comic book. I think it's much, much deeper than that. I think the question about the book that kind of makes it more than a comedy, and I'm going to stick with my assertion that every page of the book is funny and it just seems like it's the chief preoccupation of the book. And thus I assume that's the chief preoccupation of the author. The thing that's kind of, um, that makes this book difficult to interpret is his, is his medievalism. And he both, I think makes fun of O'Toole's 
medieval, excuse me, uh, Riley's medievalism. Now, he doesn't really make fun of Boethius, but he makes fun of the way that Ignatius hides behind Boethius. But he also doesn't seem to have, our author doesn't seem to have any real affection for Myrna's point of view. She's this kind of um, super political, Freudian Marxist who's all about kind of like leading the lower classes in an uprising. And it's our author doesn't take her point of view very seriously either. It's just as much an opportunity for comedy as is Riley's medievalism. So do you think that's true, Heidi? Do you think it's kind of like he is indicting both kind of Myrna, the modern, her worldview and O'Reilly's medieval worldview? Or do you think he's kind of like, gentler on the medievalism and harsher on the Marxism? Or do these two worldviews not have anything to do with the characters? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think that the worldviews are intentionally chosen, but I think that you could make a case that the eyes of the reader are supposed to be less on the ideas being espoused by any particular character and more on the dissonance between the ideas and the uh, embodiment of the ideas. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're supposed to pay more attention to the hypocrisy than we are to think about, you know, to go Google who Boethius was and what he taught. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a bit tangential other than adding to the idea of the, of the dissonance between the two. Could Ignatius have not been? Could Ignatius have not been what, David? A medievalist? No. Could he have not been a hypocrite? Uh, well, I mean, if he wasn't a hypocrite, the book wouldn't be funny at all or insightful at all. I don't, I guess I don't really mean, I don't really mean. And still have this book. I mean, could someone like Ignatius not be a hypocrite? Like, Mm -hmm. can you, can you live the way he seems to think you should live and also be present in the modern world? Can those two worldviews work at the same time without you being a hypocrite? Good question. No. I, I, see, I think so. This is so strange. I would expect you to say yes, Heidi. Okay, I'm well, say make yes. your case because maybe I'm misunderstanding the question. My friend Emily Maeda and I were trading um, texts today about nostalgia and about there's this kind of like nostalgia in the modern world for earlier times. And she kind of like jokingly calls herself a medievalist, but there's this distinction that she makes. And forgive me, I'm not going to be able to cite the essay because I'm doing all this from memory and I didn't read this essay. But she talks about this difference between um, a medievalism that wants to remake the world according to a time that has passed or a kind of medievalism that is more reflective. It's, it's a sort of like, I will hold within my heart a vision of the world that is more noble than the one that we live in. Um, that is, yes, it may be nostalgic in that it's something that, it's a time that occurred in the past, but that time that occurred in the past has certain ideals for me that when I reflect upon them, they provide a kind of counterpoint to the um, contemporary world that's, that's satisfying, that is kind of like reminding us of kind of a higher calling. And I think that's a way that the medieval, that a medievalism today 
O'Reilly could absolutely practice that. It would not be a funny book. It might be um, something more like a Wendell Berry book or something like that, you know? But I think what's, I think what makes the book so funny is that his kind of rigid, reformative approach to his medievalism, he wants to go back to this world, kind of, that is the medieval world. And anything that doesn't conform to that in the modern world, he disdains it. So is it funny then because of his lack of self-awareness? Like, is that? Yes. 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 But So then that's kind of like the complicated thing about it though, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like he has this view of the world. It's clashing up against the world he actually lives in and his own lack of self-awareness on how to operate with and still have that, those, the dissonance between those two worldviews is what causes us to laugh at him yeah. and everybody else to laugh yeah. at him. Right. Right. Well, and I think that's why I said no is because I was starting with Ignatius Riley as himself. And I don't think that I think Ignatius Riley is so self-centered and so blind uh, and, and so plagued with um, his demons, whatever they are, that he could not consistently live any kind of transcendent worldview outside of himself in his own desires, his own blindness, and um, his own need. And so, yeah, I, so you Tim, were starting more with the ideas and I was starting more with the person and mm-hmm, how he answered mm-hmm. that question. Yeah. So, so Tim... What is keeping Heidi, as someone who loves the medievals, from being Ignatius J. Riley? Well, I, I think that it's the thing that I just described. I may be wrong. Like, I, I think Heidi is not inclined to return to a world where um, women lost, like, one out of every two children that they birthed. Um, but there is something about the kind of medieval vision of the harmony of the spheres and the stars singing to each other that, I mean, I'm speaking for you now, Howdy, you're going to fix all this if I'm wrong. That's nope. like really <laughs> compelling to Heidi as a reflective action, not as an indictment of the modern world, though it may contain an indictment of the modern world along with that. Is that remotely right, Heidi? Well, I mean, if we're living in a truly medieval world, not only would I not be, not have ever read any books or be allowed (laughs) to speak to men with my opinion, um, Mm -hmm. but I would go ahead and ask David to, you know, respond for me um, (laughs) right now. Um, So, um, yeah, I don't, I I think for- I'll take over there. Yeah, right. (laughs) Please. Yes, I'm a medievalist. Um, one of the things I like about Ignatius Riley is like a lot um, is I think he's I think he's far more modern than he is medieval. He just doesn't know himself. Um, and the thing that he likes about about medievals is twofold. One that he knows more than other people about something, which which nourishes his fragile ego. But he can call it a worldview, which makes it bigger than himself. Exactly. Ostensibly. Um, And then he can be some kind of spokesman for it and he can, and he, and it provides him a platform of judgment on everything that he is failing to live up to in the modern world. Um, Another thing that I really like about him is 
his he's like such a good writer like his working boy all of everything oh he wrote gosh. was and so let's, great let's, let's end the episode this week we're not going to go as long as normal let's end it with a conversation of this because oh we were talking gosh. about how great it is it's text. so hilarious um it's so funny and it's so well written and everything about it is completely modern right to take kind of this ironic a displaced stance of judgment and um, to evaluate it by an internal standard of your own and to write about it. Like absolutely. If Ignatius Riley had, had really been able to have a profession in the real world, it would be as journalist, right. Or some kind of pundit. And he would be good at that. He'd be really good at that, but that's totally modern and not at all medieval in any way. So he is, a modern man, but he thinks he's a medieval man because he wants this posture of displaced judgment that the medievals give him. Um, so the thing that he loves then, therefore, to go back to what Tim said, that the, the thing that he loves about, about medievalism is not actually medieval. It's not actually the thing itself, right? Um, which is this harmonized orderly vision of the cosmos that we've, that I think as actually, frankly, beyond the scope of this conversation, because nothing about Ignatius Riley is medieval. It's all modern. Um, and one things one things that plagues modernity is uh, a claim to uh, to a position of expert that comes from within the pundit, not from any kind of standard that's without, right? Um, and so that is very much characteristic of Ignatius Riley. So it seems like we need to be using the word irony a lot more. Like we yes. need to be very clear what this is. This is a, like an ironic comic novel. Mm -hmm. Go on. Which can, well, that can just, that can even by itself lead to some dissonance in terms of how we read it. Cause you know, all the roles get subverted, you know, the, the things you expect out of a book. And that's what irony is, right? You get something different than what you expect. So you know, what you think of, of a character in terms of the role that he plays in the book or she plays in the book or what's supposed to happen in the next part of the book. All those things are kind of being subverted. Now that in and of itself is kind of a modern concept, but, it, but, but it's allowing Kennedy tool, like that ironic detachment and that ironic stance and approach is allowing him to examine the modern world in a way that is uniquely modern, but also allows us, allows him to compare it to the medieval world that, he values as a scholar and that Ignatius claims to, to value. So it's just like, even the fact that he can use an ironic stance to criticize the world that created ironic stances is great. <laughs> and also ironic. Totally. It's a, it's a circle of irony. Speaking of geometry. <laughs> there you go. And that's very medieval, those circles. So. Yeah, well, eventually we'll have to talk more about geometry. What, were you going to add something there, Tim? No, no, no. So um, it's Thanksgiving week. We all have some things to do to prepare. So we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But um, Tim, any final thoughts on anything? What are you looking for as we get into the third section of this book? The same thing that I was looking for at the end of the last section, which was I keep waiting for he and Myrna to actually like be in the same room at the same time. <laughs> I, want, I want that to happen. Um, and and before we go, what's your favorite side dish at Thanksgiving? Mashed potatoes and gravy. What's your favorite dessert? Pumpkin pie. Dark meat or white meat? White meat. And what are you drinking? 
before or after the meal? Yes. <laughs> Water during and whiskey after. Okay. All right, Heidi, what are you looking for in the rest of this book? I am looking for literally any connection between the threads that Tool is throwing out. Anything <laughs> ever. Yeah, you just want to see some things get brought back together. Like, and I want to know what this book is about. I know, I, I, I am well, you know not what it's about. Yes, but I don't, I don't, you don't know understand the plot. Yeah. So is that like causing you heartache? Yes. <laughs> Heartburn? I find it frustrating. Yeah. I find it frustrating. And I cannot tell if it is, if I'm going to get to the end of the novel and say that was a failure of craft or that was totally worth it. But right now I'm frustrated. Okay, do you remember the plot of any of Wooster and Jeeves' novels? They, yes, they were like, they're trying to find the cow creamer. They're trying to keep somebody from getting married. They're totally inconsequential, to, right? right? Yeah, but at least they knew what it was. <laughs> Ignatius is trying to find a job. Yeah, I mean. Isn't that the plot? It's like more maybe, noble than like finding a cow creamer. No, well, I mean. Ignatius is trying to change the world, guys. He's trying to change the world. Right. And that's then, his problem. Th- that's what I'm saying, though, is then there's absolutely no threads that are coming together that contribute anything to that plot. So there has to be another meta plot, right? That has something to do with Jones and something to do with Myrna and something. And, and we'll talk right? about, I think we'll talk about yeah. that next time. But speaking yeah. of yeah, yeah. threads, let's talk about your food choices. Okay. This is a great, okay. I like this. So okay. what's your, what's your Thanksgiving table side dish preferred? Side oh, dish? my favorite uh, is sweet potatoes for sure. As long as they are made properly. Well, you, so do you want the sweet, so you just want regular sweet potatoes? I'm guessing you don't want the delicious dessert sweet potatoes? That no, I love delicious dessert sweet potatoes, but okay. my mom used to make them with like candy, like yams from a can and they were gross. And now I make them <laughs> with like fresh Yams and they're delicious. And so they do have to be made properly. There's, you know. But you're okay with the brown sugar and like the pecans or whatever. Yep. There's a hierarchical order to the Thanksgiving side dish. There's an imperium. There's a, like, there's, there's a very medieval order to it. But okay. Yeah, okay. My, but yeah. I just want to make sure is the, is the place that everyone goes wrong with sweet potatoes is they get their can, their yam, yams from a can. Yeah. Or they're like, chopped and not mashed. They need to be mashed. They need, oh, okay. And they need to be baked in the oven, not like boiled in on. So there's microwave. Yeah, I I'm yeah I'm like a fastidious. This is why this is why this book is a struggle for me because like I would never even yeah like I I like things in their proper place. And at Thanksgiving, there's a proper way to make things. I'm like the what I'm like the Lady Mary from Downton Abbey of Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tim, I got to go back to you for one more food thing. Cornbread or stuffing? Like cornbread dressing or Ugh. stuffing? Like outside the bird or inside the bird? I think inside the bird. Heidi, what about you on that one? Uh, outside. I prefer Okay, so outside. you like the cornbread dressing. Because it gets okay. greasy if it's inside. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so, okay, so what's, your, what's your dessert of choice? Um, I like a – I actually am not crazy about pumpkin pie. It's not my fave. I don't love it. What? I know. Are you going to say thing. something like black licorice? <laughs> <laughs> There's a gap between what I'm going to say and black licorice. I hope. Um, <laughs> I love black licorice. Um, do oh, you? I didn't it. know that about Close. you. Um, my favorite um, Thanksgiving pie is apple pie. For sure. Mm, and then okay. followed by a pump or excuse me, a bourbon pecan pie. 
Mm, uh, that would that be I my really choice. Like. Yeah, but mm. my last is pumpkin pie. I don't even usually have a sliver of it, but you have to make it. It's tradition. It has to be made and consumed. I just prefer other pie. Dark meat or white? White for me, but it has to have a lot of gravy, mashed potatoes. And if it's made in the sous vide, then which we're doing this year, we're doing a sous vide turkey this year and we're doing, and then the dark meat is so, so good. It's even better than the white meat. Okay. And then what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a Chateauneuf de Pop during dinner and then champagne with the pie. Drinking a Chateauneuf de Pop. I know. Yep. Dinner. Listen to me. This is pretentious Heidi White. Yep. Well, Tim's got to go. On so brand. We're going to let Tim go. Uh, Tim, happy Thanksgiving. Happy thankful for you. Guys. Uh, I'm thankful for you guys. And uh, with that, we're going to let Tim go. Um, before, we, before we all go, before Heidi and I also leave, yeah, but um, I have to ask you questions about oh, okay. Thanksgiving. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So, David, what's your favorite? Or what is objectively the best <laughs> um, Thanksgiving so, side dish? Well, I love the um, the sweet potatoes too. I like them with the nuts and the brown sugar mm-hmm, and all that. Yeah. I think that's and great. The mar- I like them with baby marshmallows too. Oh yeah. Okay. So, See, yeah. I thought you were going to be all like, it's all, it just, just has to be like, no, it's like butter, s- maple potato. syrup. Oh yeah. It's like basically the, dessert yeah. with a main mm-hmm. dish. Oh yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, I do like, um, are you, do you guys do mash, uh, mac and cheese? Cause that's in the South people no. do mac and cheese. I never grew up with that though. I do like, um, green beans. Yeah, I like Thanksgiving well, well. homemade green bean casserole. Yeah. Although yeah, yeah. I don't even mind it with the with the with the canned stuff, but I do make it fresh, usually yeah. with French beans. Guys, you know what? all of our listeners, this this <laughs> this conversation's gonna go on for a while because yeah. we don't have Tim to mediate between <laughs> exactly. us. Now we're just talking about food. I do like um to sometimes just cook green beans, you know, like um haircut vert mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, with uh um bacon or you know something like that and almonds and lots of butter like that's yeah. pretty good too yeah um do you like mushrooms i don't person. remember this about you do you like mushrooms oh, i love mushrooms yeah yeah me too yep so stuffing what kind of stuffing do you make well i, I mean I, I i like it i'm not gonna be cooking turkey this year so stuffing that's made from real things tucked inside the bird mm-hmm. Um, do you like a cornbread stuffing? Cause I usually make mine with French bread, like day yeah, old I would French, French bread. bread. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's how I would want it. Um, you know, I do love cranberry though. Mm-hmm. Like homemade cranberry sauce, like very tart. I put cinnamon in mine. Um, mm. and I then mine in orange juice, a little yeah. bit of simple syrup, but mostly yep. orange juice, sugar, orange juice, cinnamon or simple syrup. Yeah. Yeah. I made some a couple of weeks ago. It's in the freezer. So, mm. because I had like a couple of, um, we had like a Friendsgiving thing. So I had to make it early and I just don't have that much time. So I had to do the cheat of freezing some. And if there's one thing to freeze it, unfreeze at Thanksgiving, cranberry is probably fine. <laughs> oh yeah. Cranberry will work fine. Are you but cooking? Do, what are you cooking for tomorrow? Uh, I am making mashed potatoes mm-hmm. and the cranberry and probably some kind of um, Brussels sprout type thing. Our mm-hmm. oven is um, not consistent in terms of heating. So you can't rely on me to do too so much. You can't really bake. Yeah, yeah. Which is sad because you know, I love to bake. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. We're, uh, well, I wish fun. I was having a David Kern pie tomorrow. So, <laughs> so do I. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. 
red wine with dinner, cocktail or whiskey after. Nice. Although well, champagne well. also is a good dessert at Thanksgiving. But yeah, also, like, when is it champagne. not good? When is it well, not I mean, good? it's always good. It's always good, champagne, for sure. But that's what we always have with our pie on Thanksgiving. Well, so, well with that, I we'll hope let you eat well, back. David. <laughs> hey, by the time people listen to this, we'll have we'll still be in our food comas. Uh, so uh, we just want to say thank we're thankful to everybody who, who listens to this mm-hmm. show and who helps us spread the word and who leaves nice comments and joins the conversation and supports us on Patreon and all that sort of stuff. Um, we're grateful. If you want to join the Patreon and participate in some of the new things that we're doing there, you can go to patreon.com slash close reads and join there. If you've never joined the Facebook group, what are you waiting for? You can head over to facebook.com slash close reads. Great conversation there. Lots of great stuff going on. And, and again, it's been a great year. We're so thankful for everybody um, who has supported the show, but also supported everything we're doing at the bookstore. And, you know, um, the Jokos readers sent Bethany and I a gift card for one of our favorite restaurants uh, for the for the store's first birthday. And um, just want to say thank, thank, th- thank you for that. We're going to have a nice break. It's going to be it's going to be great time. So thank you for uh, giving us that gift. We really do. I mean, I feel really blessed to have this community and this audience, um, this, you know, community, I think is the real word. Um, so uh, we've got lots of stuff coming up for the next year. Uh, some events that we're just kind of finalizing details on and trying to iron out some things, but I think you're going to be really excited about it. So again, thank you. And I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving, uh, has a great holiday weekend and, um, all the Christmas festivities, you know, kick off in in a great way for everybody. So, um, with that for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening until next time. Happy reading. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.